I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. You're listening to Podcast Playlist. This week, we're digging into the archives and sharing a repeat of one of our favorite episodes from the past. Shan Boudram is the Internet's most sought-after certified sexologist. Anything you want to know about sex, dating, or relationships, she's got you covered. Shan describes herself as the Walmart greeter of sex and relationships, and if you have a question or concern, she can point you in the right direction. On her new podcast, Lovers and Friends, Shan dives into sex, intimacy, and the science of attachment to look at how we can approach our own relationships. While she may be new to podcasting, Shan is no stranger to the spotlight. She's also a YouTuber with over 70 million views under her belt. She's a best-selling author, scholar, media personality, consultant, wife, and mother. Shan joins me now from her home in Los Angeles. Hey, Shan. Hello. It is the weirdest thing in the world to hear your bio read out loud. (laughs) And every single time people say something different, it's always fascinating. That was really fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for introducing me that way. It was lovely. Oh, my gosh. We are very excited that you're on the show today. We're going to discuss all things sex and relationships, and then we'll listen to your favorite podcast. But before we get into that... I heard you were recently quarantining on an island for another project that you're working on. How was that? It was the most luxurious home prison, (laughs) maybe ever. I felt like Pablo Escobar um, (laughs) when he went to jail and he was in this lovely place and it was nice. But I mean, I didn't have my friends there. My my baby was there. This is my third time doing this uh, show and each time. I've had different circumstances when I was there. The first time I went alone for a month, that was not the move. And the second time I went with my mom and my baby, and then I went with my husband and my baby. And it was really nice in some ways, but also it's also nice to see people and talk to people. So it was kind of like being back in 2020, March. We don't we don't want to go back there. No, we do not. And and actually, you just mentioned that you have a new baby. Congratulations. Um, Thank you so much. So you're a new mom. What has that experience been like for you? Humbling. (laughs) Fascinating. Um, Yes, I think humbling is probably the absolute best word to describe it. Illuminating. I think that um, the one thing that I've learned is like, wow, babies are a lot of work. And you're like sitting here, like, obviously we all know this, but you just don't know until you're in it that it's not just a lot of work. It's literally nonstop in your sleep. You're dreaming about them. You're responsive to them. Every moment of the day, you know, you have to be in tune with this other person's needs. And we're not even in tune with our own needs at every moment of the day. So it was really a stretch for me and a very steep learning curve. But hopefully I have beautiful people in my life. My sister said to me, you know, zero to one can be harder than one to 20, Mm. which I'm sure a parent of a teenager would debate that. But (laughs) nonetheless, it's a really, really sharp learning curve. And um, I'm glad that we're on the other side of it now when she's 15 months and we're starting to get our groove, which I'm sure if you talk to me in two months, I'll say that was the stupidest statement because things got crazy after that. You've built your career on YouTube. From there, you branched out onto other big projects like 
TV, writing your book, creating your podcast. How has your sexology work evolved over those years as you've taken on these new challenges? What I think is really fascinating is I, it hasn't really evolved. It's evolved in terms of opportunities. It's evolved in terms of exposure, but the reason, the precipice, the why for I beginning this is the exact same. So I was 19 years old with a terrible sex life and no orgasms, many partners, very low self-confidence, very low body awareness, a lot of curiosity, but that curiosity, you know, led me to places like porn and to fiction books and to fiction TV shows, which gave me a lot of misinformation that I acted out in my own life. And then obviously not surprisingly, didn't have success with that. And essentially I sex educated myself. I got a library card. I'm from Pickering, Ontario, Canada. And so I went to the Pickering library over summer and read every book possible about sex. And I thought, wow, there's great information here, but it's kind of boring. You know, like sex education is kind of like bad sex. It's monotonous. It's faceless. It's dry. It's predictable. Somebody needs to bring the life, the excitement, the juice, for lack of a better term, that you get (laughs) in fiction content and then add this really great grounding information that science is providing. So I saw myself as the bridge between the two worlds, and I still see myself as that today. And it's fascinating because you you built that online and the Internet, as as we know, plays such a big part in your career, whether, you know, you're sharing parts of your life or educating and connecting with others. What is it like to to have people be a part of that journey and witness your growth on such a personal level? Yes. And I will say, because I started this call by saying congratulations to you for this job. I'm assuming you're young. You might not be. And if it's a bad assumption, I apologize. Thank you, Shan. I'm just going to say, yes, I'm very young. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I went to school for journalism. That was how I entered into this space. Mm -hmm. In journalism school, they say, write what you know. And Mm -hmm. so some people became sportscasters. Some people became entertainment reporters. This is what I wanted to talk about. And right coming out of school, my first book, Laid, came out. And it was a pretty big failure, I'd say. Um, And that's not a bad thing. You know, I was 24 years old and then I threw myself into other mediums, trying to get writing jobs, trying to get TV jobs. I always saw myself as a public facing educator. I never envisioned myself as being a one-to-one practitioner as a sex educator. So it was always about how do I tell this story? How do I share the information as a journalist? And so when I, you know, talked to you, I was like, congratulations on getting a job because I know how hard that is. So my foray into the internet was really from, um, a failed perspective of I had tried traditional media. I had tried putting out a book by myself the traditional way. I had a great publisher who was a feminist press in California who said yes, but saying yes to a person who had no platform but a great idea didn't really amount to much for me. And I spent a lot of years floundering. And so in essence, YouTube was a last resort for me mm-hmm. because- People were like, it's interesting what you're doing. I just don't really get it. So I was like, okay, well, let me go a place that I can show you. And um, it was a beautiful experience for me because it allowed me to shape the way that I wanted to tell my story, which I think is really unique. And it was unique at the time. And um, then opportunities sprung up from there. But I've never left YouTube because I always know it's a place that you can go back to to tell the story the exact way that you want to without anybody else putting a filter or their lens or perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And now you're in podcasting. What made you decide to go with the title Lovers and Friends? This is like not the most coolest answer, I guess. Um, there's a SNL skit and Will Ferrell was in a hot tub with somebody and people would enter the hot tub and he'd be like, hello there, lovers. <laughs> I find when one 
first enters the scalding waters of the Hatab, it is not unlike your first encounter with a new lava. And so I used to start my YouTube videos like that, like, hello, lovers and friends. And so then just became a thing of like, I would just refer to people as lovers and friends. And genuinely, I looked at what I was curating as a community of people who were passionate about this topic, people who I would be friends with. And it was very difficult, especially at that time, to find other sex positive individuals because it was still very taboo. This is 2015 or so. And mm -hmm. so I looked at the people I was communicating with. It's like, yeah, like we're in this together. We're lovers and we're friends. And so... That just is what has stuck. <laughs> I'm also very bad at titles. Let me just say that. I, I am awful title. at titles. I think it's I'm a good not title. a good title person. So it's probably a lack of creativity and just knowing myself of like, let's just do that thing. Right. Well, your podcast is described as everything the talk should be. Do you remember your first time ever getting the talk, quote unquote, the talk? And what was that experience like? Yes. So I've told this story a few times and my sister, who is the lead producer on the podcast and someone that I work with, which is why it's really beyond a dream come true project on so many levels. Uh, but I've told this story and she's like, I don't remember this, but I'll tell it anyways, because I remember it, that my dad is a very open book person. My mom, not so much. She's a, a bit, I want to say classy. Uh, my dad's a very forward and he, I think he would not mind me saying he's a vulgar person. Mm -hmm. So he's just kind of like cards on the table kind of guy and so he was like yeah ask me anything you want you know when it comes to sex you guys can just ask whatever you want uh, which I always say on one hand is a positive thing to have that open door policy but it also it's a lot of responsibility on a young person to guide a conversation that one they have a lot of uncertainties around and two there's a lot of fear you know if I ask mm -hmm. the wrong thing will I get in trouble or how will you perceive me so sometimes that ask me anything approach is not the best it needs to be a guided conversation from the authority figure which would be my dad but I think the talk was just like, you guys can ask anything at any time. And so both me and my sister were kind of sitting there like, I have no idea what we can ask. And my sister was like, um, can two penises fit in a vagina at one time? And that's what I remember of the talk. <laughs> that's, that's great that your dad was so open because a lot of people have the opposite um, experience with their parents or their caregivers. And then, you know, they turn to books or even other online content. And the the sex ed umbrella, as you mentioned, can be quite dry and taboo for some people. So what is your specific approach to making it feel more approachable for others? I think that sex education has to mirror sex. Sex sells, right? Mm -hmm. So sex education should sell. The conversation should be exciting. It should be fun. It should be explorative. You should want to dive in more. You should want to lean into it. It should be funny. It's awkward, right? Like all the things we kind of like about sex that it's imperfect, but it's also a vulnerable space and it's a safe space. You know, that's what great sex, you know, it really should be. So I think that the conversation has to have that. It can't be like, okay, we're going to talk about sex. Everybody shut down your phones <laughs> and sit with your hands in your lap. This is a serious conversation. It should be a place people feel they can come to the table. They can bring their ideas, their questions, that they can have somebody guide them. I think that's a really big thing too. Like, like I said, it's one thing to have an open dialogue, but you do need a leader because this is an area that we're not given ad adequate education in and we don't have the language around. So even if we are given an open space to dialogue, most people won't know where to begin. So I do want it to be a mix of an authority figure who's got 
knowledge and statistics and information and guided conversation tent poles to go through. But then also on the other side, you know, if you have one great sexual partner who knows everything and they're just performing on somebody else, that's not really great sex either. It has to feel collaborative. You have to be able to bring yourself to the table and to bring your truth. And my biggest educator is my audience of all the education that I've done before. I've never learned more than I do by listening and learning and reading comments and being in constant dialogue with people. So I think that's the the vision I have for the work that I do. And those people have a question for you. It's your most asked question, which was surprising to me. It's what made you decide to become a sex expert? And so to summarize it, could you share what made you want to become a sexologist? Yeah, sex life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's like the basis of it was I'm not good at this and I want to be good at this. I don't like the feeling of being out of control of my intimate future, my intimate self. I'm not happy. And so it was a selfish reason. It was essentially I want to do better and I want to learn more. And through that and through that self-education, I had the aha that, well, if this was useful for me and transformative for me, and I was, you know, took on the initiative to do what many people wouldn't have done. How can I bridge the gap? How can I provide this information to somebody who wants it, but may not, one, have accessibility to a library, or number two, may not have the gumption to go and take a couple classes, uh, but they want it. So I wanted to make this dialogue as accessible as possible, which is why, you know, I referred to myself as the Walmart greeter of sex. And my management team has often been like, stop cheapening <laughs> yourself. Stop saying it that way. But I'm like, everybody knows Walmart. Everybody's mm-hmm. been to a Walmart before it's a place that you know you can find easily you're driving on the highway it's not this elite club it's not for some people it's not only in local cities it's everywhere it's common there's no embarrassment or shame in going there and you may not go there for a big field trip it might just be i gotta go to walmart it's a casual thing right and this conversation should be casual and i want to be the person at the front who's like welcome what's up what do you need here's some coupons and um where are you trying to go and i I love the fact that it's now becoming that more and more. And I've always wanted that, wherein that I didn't want to be the sex educator who was only on Showtime at 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the person that you could see on CBC on The Goods at 11 a.m. in the morning. And I wanted to be the person that you could read about in the Toronto Star, you know, and not just on the weekends. And so making the conversation accessible and open to all and easy Uh, because I know it can be extremely difficult, has been something that's top of mind for me every step of the way of my career. So we're going to listen to a clip from Lovers and Friends where you share a story about why you weren't allowed to play with naked Barbies growing up. Is there anything you want listeners to know before we listen? This is one of the most embarrassing episodes (laughs) by far It's such a good one because people who listen to it really heavily relate, but I'm sharing really embarrassing stories of my childhood. So let's do this. Here's a clip from Lovers and Friends. I have said this line several times before, um, so let's just dive into it more. When I was around seven years old or so, my Barbies were banned from being naked. Shannon absolutely loved Barbies. Actually, it started even younger than Barbies. It actually started with uh, Little People, Fisher Price, Little People. Fisher Price neighborhood is open for fun. Little people. She used to clutch them and hold them in her hand everywhere she went. And then about four or five, she switched over to Barbies. And 
and she loved playing with Barbies all the time. But she had this obsession with taking the Barbies clothes off and putting them in bed together. So we have Barbie and we have Ken in bed together. And at some point I said, you can't take the Barbie's clothes off all the time like that. Um, You have to keep the Barbie's clothes on. Now, I was an avid Barbie player. Um, I had a great imagination. My sister had a great imagination. We would create these storylines. Growing up, I watched soap operas. I watched all my children. I would be in kindergarten stressed out that I couldn't get home in time because all my children came home, came on at 1 p.m. I'd be stressed out that I would miss my stories. Lauren, our oldest daughter, she had gone to school and so she went to school in the afternoon. So it was just myself and Shannon at home. And that was, all my children came on at one o'clock. So it's, um, you know, lunchtime, making Shannon lunch. I put all my children on. And so of course now she's three years old, four years old, and she's gotten into it as well. And I guess that's probably where she got all of the ideas of relationships and um, the conversations that they had around relationships, possibly around sex. Back in those days, it wasn't the same kind of conversations that were allowed on TV that they have nowadays. But it doesn't take much to sort of put um, the whole picture together. And I'm sure Shannon at that time was able to put everything together and say, you know what? If they're doing it, then this is what my Barbie should be doing as well. Am I bad? When we went to our grandma's house, it was all my children time even there too. Like we were all Erica Kane fans, Erica Kane and Jeremy. What were their names again? Adam and Stuart, the twins, Haley, Tad. These were the people. These were the people that we grew up with. So we as kids who grew up on soap operas, didn't play Barbies like we changed their names or changed their jobs. Like there was a storyline. There was a cohesive storyline. If you were married to somebody, you were married till you were not married. If you worked at the pet store, you worked at the pet store. I know that all of our Barbies had all these dramatic storylines and they were like divorcing and, and, you know, seeing other people and getting new jobs and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, they had these romantic relationships that sometimes went beyond like, hi, honey, you're home. A lot of the stories naturally led to people's clothes coming off. And so we would have our Barbies in these, you know, storylines and in these activities. And then something will be happening. We would call for dinner. And because I thought nothing of it, I would just drop them and then go upstairs. I think it was after the pillows incident that happened that my mom coming in the room and tidying up after us or just seeing what we were doing or just being in the room for some reason and seeing the naked Barbies had a shift in meaning for her. And no longer was it like innocent play or maybe them just in the middle of changing clothes, but she saw it as, you know, us or me acting out lewdly and inappropriately. See, my choice of words actually is vulgar. Like that is my choice of word. That's a vulgar behavior um, or inappropriate behavior. Mom, Shannon's being lewd again. So I remember that my Barbies were in the pool. We had like a, we had a lit, we had a Barbie room. Like it was a town, it was a lit town. So one of the Barbies had their own pool. And um, I think she was getting freaky with her partner in the pool area. My mom saw the two Barbies laying on top of each other in the pool. And she pulled me into the room and she said, what were these Barbies doing? And I think I was just like, oh, just, they're just going for a swim. Said, Why aren't they wearing any clothes? I was like, I mean, 
I think it was a really hot day. And she said, okay, well, there's swim trunks and they could be wearing swim trunks. And from now on, I don't want to see your Barbies naked. You can change their clothes, but do not play with your dolls while they have no clothes on. And that became a rule in my house, no naked Barbies. I'm actually really surprised mom didn't bring me up in the whole playing with Barbies naked thing because I pretty much know that the person who Sham predominantly played Barbies with was me. And I remember that pool scene just very vividly because I I just remember as I was like, this feels a little bit more than what I'm good with. I know that when I was uncomfortable in those moments, like of playing Barbies, I don't think that I ever went to my parents to say like, uh, this happened and I don't know how I feel about it. Because again, like my, me and my sister, when we're playing Barbies, we're in a safe space together. And there was a sense of shame around what we were doing, but I didn't understand why you just kind of had that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like maybe we're not supposed to be doing this, but I don't even think if I'm being honest that I even said to Shan in the moment, I don't think I corrected anything. I think it was just this internal thing inside me that I was processing to kind of be like, I don't know how I feel about this, but I never even communicated that to Shan because I think like a few weeks later that was, or like maybe a couple days later, like that was it for Barbie fun time. When I played with the Barbies naked and when they were, I didn't necessarily mock you know, sex, because I didn't know what the activities of sex were. I just knew that when people were in an intimate relationship and they trusted each other, they took their clothes off and they experienced pleasure with one another. They experienced an intimate time that included their bodies. And while, you know, a seven-year-old mocking that activity can seem lewd to some people, I think it's actually kind of cool to understand the context for appropriate sexual contact, to mock the kinds of conversations that would lead to that contact, to um, play around and figure out like how does a healthy sex life fit into life? Because it is a natural part of life. And like I said, we were mocking life through our Barbie games, everything from getting fired to getting divorced, to arguments, to job and career changes. We were doing all of that. And sex wasn't the focal point, but it was a part of the storyline, just like it is in real life. So if you are going to allow me to play with Barbies and to play in this world and to create this universe, why would we decide that sex is the one thing that good Barbies don't do? And from age eight to 18, I lived in that truth. And every time that I did engage with my sexual self, I felt shame. Every time that I did engage in overt physicality, I felt shame. And that shift happened at age 19, which we can go back and tell the whole library story, but I think you know that part. I'm uncomfortable with it, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I appreciate what Shannon is doing right now for all of the, the younger people out there because and encouraging parents out there to talk to their kids from a very young age. They are curious, and I would definitely have done it a lot different. I have a clinical background, and so when I talked about sex, I talked about it in a clinical sense, and that's not what kids want to hear. They want to hear about the feelings, the emotions that go with it. They want to hear. They have a lot of questions, and you should be able to answer them, and they should be able to come to you with those questions. And um, I was not one of those approachable parents, and I wish I was.
from More Sauce and Stitcher. That was Lovers and Friends. It's executive produced and edited by Shared Entertainment's Shan Boudram and Lauren Morrison. It's also produced by Stitcher's Jackie Sojiko. To West Entertainment and Workhouse Media. Engineering by Pete Karam. Music by Jared Brady and Jasmine Henley-Brown is the executive producer at More Sauce. And of course, Lovers and Friends is hosted by Shan Boudram, who's with me today as a guest curator. Before we get into your podcast picks, we wanted to tap into your expertise and pick your brain for some dating advice. Is that all right with you? Of course. Okay. We put a call out to our listeners looking for dating and relationship advice, and we received a ton of responses. So we wanted to turn it to you and get you to do what you do best. So all the questions we got were submitted anonymously. So here is question one. I want to ask my crush out but they never go on social media and I don't have their phone number. I only have their work email address because we met working on a project. I feel like it's inappropriate to ask them out via their work email. What should I do? You don't have to ask somebody out. You can do 15% of that, right? You can ask somebody a question, you know, like, hey, something that's related to the work. Start a dialogue. That's really the first move. People think of it like, my making the first move is showing the person that I have romantic interest in them. Making the first move could literally just be walking by somebody and bumping them on purpose and be like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Right. That's the first move. And then you see how that person responds from there. It's a game of poker. You don't have to show all of your cards at once, but you engage in the game and you see if the person folds and they're not matching you, then you know, you, you know that you don't really have a hand to play, but if there is a back and forth and there's an exchange, what's the rush? This is not a rom-com where you have to wrap things up in an hour and a half. You've got time on your side. So reach out for something that's kind of in the middle of work and play and see how that person responds and how the conversation progresses from there. Okay. So question number two, how do you successfully date in your 30s. It seems as though every guy my age is already in a long-term relationship slash is married or engaged. Enjoy yourself. I started dating when I was 30 the right way and I loved it. I definitely had a goal in mind that I wanted the experience of getting to know people to lead to marriage and to children, but I never assigned that to the individuals I was talking to, right? Like, I know, for example, like in my career, like what I ultimately want to do, I don't walk into every job opportunity being like, you're going to be the one to take me to my biggest dreams and my biggest hopes. It's just an opportunity. We'll see where it goes from there. And if it ends up being that great, but I'm not going to assign so much expectation on someone that I just met. So as much as you probably have goals for where you want the experience of dating to go, don't place that on every individual that you date. Just look for cues that you're enjoying yourself, that things are progressing. And um, just if you keep doing that, it should lead you along the right path. But I just say have fun, be in control, be very clear about what you want. It's very important not just to assess what you want out of somebody, but how you want to feel. I love this. Someone gave this to me that we often are so focused in life on to-do lists. Like I want to get married or I want to have kids or I want to be with somebody who makes six figures instead of to feel lists. What do you want to feel I want to feel funny. I want to feel cool. I want to feel sexy. I want to feel excited. I want to feel like I'm not begging somebody to like me. And if I'm not making those to feel lists, then I move on to the next person. That's good. You're good. Um, Oh, thank you. Question number three. (laughs) We can edit that part out. But question number three, asking (laughs) as a straight cisgendered male, 
why do women sometimes prefer the chase or play hard to get? It's natural. If you go out to the nightclub area on Friday night, it's the club with the lineup that gets the most attention. So there is something to the human brain where we want to know that we have earned something, that we've gained something that's in high commodity. And yeah, if you walk into a restaurant and nobody else is sitting there, there's a part of you that thinks, is this restaurant good? That's just, I think, you know, human nature. And also we're not naturally philanthropists that just want to donate and give. We want there to be an equal exchange, an exchange where we feel like we made a come up that we got, we're the lucky ones. And so I don't think the game that is being played is as much, I want to be chased or I want the pursuit, but I want this to be something that we all really have to assess that it's worth working for. Um, and it is because it's in high demand. So I, um, yeah, that's, that's it's a tricky question because I know that people don't like games and I know it can feel very frustrating, but if you can lean into it and look for the fun in it, know that it doesn't last forever, that it's just a period of time of courtship. And then when you get to companionate love and companionate connection, a lot of those things go away, but not completely either, because there is still, even when you're in a marriage, a push and pull that has to happen, the, that constant fire and desire, because we never want to feel like, well, I can know this person 1000% and there's nothing new. It's that excitement of the unknown that keeps us looking around the corner and keeps us hooked or at least keeps the passion alive. Okay, here's the last question. I am a naturally sensitive person and tend to get emotionally connected very easily. It's been difficult for me to date in this generation of online dating and I find myself feeling less motivated to go out whenever I get ghosted. Any advice on how I can approach dating better is appreciated. Thank you. I've been giving this advice a lot, um, which is date uglier people. And I use the term <laughs> ugly just for the laugh, literally for the laugh. I'm really just saying people that you're not as invested in. What you need to do is just build your confidence back up and then get back to the joy of dating. The joy of dating in general is that a complete stranger is setting aside time to see if the two of you have something special. And it's an opportunity for you to be different versions of yourself, to tell the stories that your friends have already heard a billion times before. Um, you tell them all over again and you get to see the best parts of you reflected back through somebody else and vice versa. That's the joy of dating. But sometimes when we are dating with high stakes and we feel out of practice and we feel a lack of confidence, it can also be a very crushing experience. So I would just say, Get back to dating people where maybe you don't feel this extreme pressure to prove. And if that person doesn't like you, it's going to crush you. Just around people that you're like, you know what? If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Get your confidence up. You know, in, be ethical and be good to other people. Provide a positive experience. But I think what you really need is to just, again, see the beauty in it without the stakes being maybe as high as they've been for you in the past, which has led to these big letdowns. Hmm. Low stakes dates. That is... That is super insightful. Um, thank you so much for doing this. If you're looking for more dating advice and other musings from Shan, you can check out her book, The Game of Desire, which is all about the art of seduction. Okay, are you ready to talk about your podcast picks? Absolutely. Okay, so the first one you have for us is called Enjoy the Podcast. It's yes. about getting the male perspective on everything from relationships to vulnerability. It's hosted by three men who you know, Justin Davis, Carlos Eckert, and your husband, Jared Brady. What do you love about this podcast? We very rarely get to hear men of color talk vulnerably and openly about intimacy. Um, 
And I love the fact that there's three various perspectives and they're not afraid to dive in. They're also not afraid to be wrong and to be educated. And majority of their audience is women. So it's a dialogue that it doesn't happen very often in real life. And it's beautiful to see it done online. And it's fun. I love seeing uh, male friendships. Uh, my husband actually started this podcast because after the pandemic, he was like, I'm really missing male energy and male friendships in my life. And I love the fact that he was intentional about that and started it for this reason. And so it's a beautiful thing to watch. And yeah, again, like I said, it's just, it's wonderful to see um, black men talk about mental health and talk about love and vulnerability and talk about their feelings on soul ties and various other topics. And um, I always listen and learn and I hope other people will feel the same way. The clip we're going to listen to from Enjoy the Podcast, you appear as a guest and you join the guys in a candid conversation about rejection. So for any men who are listening, what advice do you have for them about facing rejection? It sucks. It's never not going to suck. Um, but it's one of my favorite quotes I got before was from a pickup artist, actually. And he said, a lot of people think that it's the person who approaches you who wants you the most. But just because somebody approaches you doesn't mean anything other than the fact that they're in practice of doing that. And so similar, approaching people is kind of like riding a bike. And just because someone can ride a bike doesn't mean they're going to be a great boyfriend. That means essentially that rejection is a part of life and it's a part of my job. It's a part of anybody who's successful and who has gained something worth having. Some people luck into it, yes, but many people it's through constant trial and error and the error is never going to not suck and that's okay. It's also a learning lesson, an opportunity to grow. Here's a clip from Enjoy the Podcast. Rejection hurts, but it can help. Yes. Yep. How? For me... Um, I think that rejection is a process. I'm still mm. learning how to process it. Uh, mm. Whenever I get rejected, my instant feeling is like ego shattered. My gut hurts. I feel like yeah. I'm the worst person at anything that I was trying to do. And right. I kind of just go into a ball for a second. Mm -hmm. Mm. And then through that, I kind of get through you know, that pump up phase right. where I look in the mirror and I'm like, no, you got this. You're good. <laughs> You're really good. And so for me, it's kind of been that process since I was a kid. Yeah, if I yeah. do something that I felt like I was terrible at or I got rejected in, I kind of go into a ball. Mm. I get, I get real with myself and then I look at myself in the mirror and say, what do you need to change? Yeah, there you go. What do you need to fix so that you're right. not ever going to be in this position again? Yeah. I remember, um, uh, you know, the one thing that makes me cry to this day is uh, music. Music makes yes. me cry yes. all the time. Yeah. Yes. And I remember I just went through a rejection through music and it wasn't like from Wait, somebody. When you say music, you're talking about your, your, music, your musical career. career. My musical okay, career. Right, just for clarity. Not yeah. like Eminem like, songs. <laughs> I'm I heard not, like, a new listening. Eminem record and it brought, <laughs> you better lose yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when my, my career, um, I remember getting to a place, it was like 2018, and I was putting out music. It wasn't going anywhere. I would make plans. I would, I would hire a videographer. He wouldn't show up. Like yeah. it kept <laughs> disappointing me I over and that. over and over again. And yeah. so, um, or that big rejection you had where that dude left your performance. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, you talked about that on the, we talked on failure. the failure one. Yeah. 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 Oh, that, that one you saw him leave? that one no i oh, that's <laughs> so good i i i was performing it <laughs> that's was like seeing the email yeah <laughs> it was a terrible performance i i get off stage and the guy that was there him and his partner came and one of them stayed out of respect and i went in he was just there and he had this look on his face like 
and it, bro. and I, I remember walking to him, so I was like, oh, where's your partner? And he was like, oh, he's old. He had to leave. Oh. And I just remember just, uh, I knew what it yeah, was. Yeah. And I just remember just being just. Yeah. Which is fascinating, though, because I don't think that you recognize that you could have done better until that happened. Yes. Yeah. Because the truth mm-hmm. is. The you, crowd loved it. And you didn't prepare yeah. that much. And I didn't prepare that much. So I think it was a good lesson for you. It was huge. Yeah. It was huge. And I learned a lot from that. But I remember going into a ball. Like, the next day, I woke up just yeah. depressed as f- Like, just hurting. Like, my whole... I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to do well, anything. It, it took you, like, two, three months before you did Could anything perform again. music. Yeah. Like, anything yeah. at all that had anything to do with music. I remember yeah. after that performance, like, kind of wondering, like, well, is that... Is that it? Is that... Well, is no, that because it? you rented out rehearsal space, like, yeah, what, then, a week like, later. Yeah, the week later, I went, I went and rented out a rehearsal space, and I just started going hammer on rehearsing. Interesting, because you and I didn't work on anything. Well, we, I wasn't recording. Right. Yeah. I, I was saying, like, you didn't want to, like, get, no. go to the studio, or and after that, you were like, no, nah, I'm, I'm, like... I'm good Because right I was now. trying to get you back. I was like, no, no, yeah. you got to get in. You gotta yeah, get, yeah, yeah. You got to get back on the horse. You got to get back on. You were just like... I didn't no. know you would went to a re- uh, rehearsals. Yeah, because I just knew it. W- I didn't have a problem with recording. I only yeah. had a part of problem with performing. You got on some Kobe, and so I just went into the gym. I went. I rehearsed like uh, like five hours every every all the time. Every time when I went out of rehearsal, mm-hmm. and I would just go back to back, just running my my uh, songs back to back to back. Ironically, the Damn. next performance I did, I murdered it. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, which one was the next? M- MGK one? was there. Oh yeah, yes. that's right. That's right. And that so, was a good one. But and Youngblood walked in, and they're like. You killed it, Mike. That yeah. was bloody awesome. Yeah, he sounds just like that. But and what what I really want to say is that like I remember the next day, um, I'm having a conversation with you, and I was like, I remember just being like, I hate this feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do music anymore because nothing in the yeah. world makes me feel like this mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And you were like, Look, this is what you love. This is what Shan said. She was like, This is what you love. You are going to have to get used to rejection. Mm-hmm. You are going to have to go through this feeling over and over and over and over again Mm -hmm. because this is your passion. And the good thing about it is because if it can bring you that low, Mm -hmm. it can also take you that high. high. Um, So I had to just get to that, like, pull up myself up by my bootstraps Mm -hmm. and just be like, I'm going to take this on the chin. What can I learn from this? And that was the only way that I could cope with the rejection. Um, but that was my lesson. Well, because rejection is a sign that you actually care. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of people don't ever try at what where the stakes are high for themselves. They mm. never have to feel that feeling. Yeah. But they also don't ever get that high either. Yeah. Mm. So mm. it's a trade off. It's a it's a hard trade off. Yeah. It's a hurtful trade off. But mm. yeah, I w- I wouldn't change it for the world. It's, yeah, it's interesting because it, it made me think about. Um, I have an answer for what I learned from rejection, but it's more or less what you were saying. I would just add to it. Just it makes me learn. Um, I find the lesson in in rejection constantly. Um, But that's the easy one. But what I was going to say was um, part of the reason why I don't really have that much of a rejection story with relationships was because I was always the one to reject first before it even got before it even got to that point. Mm -hmm. Um, As I had Shannon, who can relate. We talked about uh, (laughs) we talked about self-sabotaging. And I realized after doing um, research after Shannon and I's uh, pre-call that I was the one who was in control of the exit door of the strategy. Yeah. So I would, I had fear of intimacy, not just sexually, but just fear of letting someone get close to me because the closest ones to you or the thing that you care the most about yeah. can hurt you the most. Yeah. Mm. And so I was always like, I need to be in control before 
I get hurt, I need to make sure that this is something I, I'm okay with or I'm not okay with. So I was always the one who rejected first. Mm. Can we yeah. talk about that? That it's so much easier when you're one foot in, one foot out, yep. and then you leave, then you can always go back to in your mind, like, oh, well, if I would have put both feet in, yeah. I would have succeeded. Yeah. Well, the truth is, yeah. You, yeah. you may not have. Exactly. Exactly. We know a lot or of people Or you might have like put that. both feet in and got kneecapped. <laughs> right. <laughs> got yeah. your ass took up out the game. I would have went pro, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying. You know, it's, it's, I'm I, only 5'5", five, five, but you know. Yeah, yeah. You would have won I state, just, but coach didn't put me in on yeah. that last play. You know right. what I mean? Like right. all four quarters, he didn't want to put me in? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole year, he didn't let me play one game, man. If I right. played one game, we would have won. And I told him. I told him. What about you? What'd you learn, bro? Um, I'd say just for me, uh, rejection just offers clarity. You know, it gives you a, a chance to um, kind of just play Monday morning quarterback. You know, yeah. you get to watch the film. You yep. get to mm. look back and say, okay, mm. this worked, this didn't work. What could I, like, you know, like everybody's just, just saying, like, what can I have done different? What could maybe I've done better? Yeah. Where did I not set myself up to succeed? Where did I set myself up to succeed? Like, rejection yeah. can show you, it's not necessarily just... Um, to see what you did wrong, to see what you did right as yeah. well. It's yeah. a chance to, to take in, you know, both sides of the coin. So yeah. Yeah, for me, I would, I'd say, you know, rejection just kind of gives you that, that space for clarity. That was Enjoy the Podcast. It's produced by Shared Entertainment, executive produced by Lauren Morrison. It's created by Jared Brady, who hosts along with Carlos Eckerd and Justin Davis. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a bit of a theme going here with your podcast, Shan. The next one is a classic self-help and therapy podcast. Where should we begin with Esther Perel? Why do you gravitate to these kind of podcasts? I mean, we all gravitate to Esther Perel, the <laughs> accent, the wisdom. Really, you know, she's the Dalai Lama of the intimacy world and I think, again, it's so important to hear the language, to have tough conversations compassionately and effectively. And this podcast really does provide that. And she gives you a look into live therapy sessions. And more than likely, you're not going to relate to the issue that the people bringing into the session are coming with, but you're always going to learn something. We're going to listen to some of it now. In this clip, we get to be a fly on the wall during a therapy session. Esther chats with a woman who's struggling with the differences between her and her partner's upbringing. She loves her partner, but is working on how not to resent him for their difference in privilege. What does it say? How does it speak? What does it do? How does it snap? Like me talking to him? Like your resentment talking to him? Um, it's kind of like... How dare you take advantage of the easy option when I have to do it the hard way? Keep going. Um, yeah, it's like you don't understand how easy you have it. Um, and you don't appreciate what you have. 
And I wish that you would just, um, I wish it was harder for you too. If it was harder for you, you'd understand a little more about how hard it is for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is this a secret topic, a hidden topic, or is this out in the open? It's out in the open. It's relatively recently that I realized it's even a topic for me, mm -hmm. but it's out in the open. What triggered it? First, it was that we're, we kind of work in similar fields and um, and living together. I, I get to see just the ins and outs of his financial life and of mine, and he makes significantly more than I do. Um, and then it was small things like taxes. Like his dad was able to pay for an accountant and I had to pay <laughs> quite a bit of money for mine. Um, and just learning more about his, his family's financial situation and comparing it to mine, our future together. And when you brought it up? I just said, like with the tax thing, I just brought up, like, I'm, I'm having some feelings around, around you, like not going with this accountant service and relying on your dad's accountant, which then leads to, well, do you want me to not, do you want me to use the same service that you use, even though I have this other option available? And of course, that's not true. But then we end up in this kind of quiet space of, of like each hurting a little bit me because I have the resentment and him because he's like, why is this my problem now? Can I ask you something? Sure. If I asked him what drew you to each other, would I hear something to the effect of she worked really hard to get to where she is? I admire her strength. Yeah, you would. I would. Okay. Yeah. So he he is not oblivious to your reality. He understands that where did you come from? Uh, Iran. Okay. Yeah. Does he know more than just the name of the country? Does he know a bit of the situation? Yeah, yeah, he knows quite a bit and he's very close with my mom. Okay. So basically you have a good start. That means he's not oblivious. He knows probably quite a bit about what it took to get here, what it took to start here. Is it fair to assume that you also put money aside to help your mother if she needs it? Yeah, absolutely. Your, right. Your salary is not just for you. Your income is not only for you. And he probably respects it and maybe even admires it. Mm -hmm. Yes, so far? Yes, okay. yeah, absolutely. Right. right. So when your resentment becomes activated and it wants to say you don't understand, it is not exactly true. It is the way resentment talks, but resentment sometimes is biased too. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of resentment sometimes is loss, longing, Envy. Like, I wish I could have it sometimes easy like you. Not just I wish you would have it as hard as very hard so you would understand what hard means to me. And it's not really sure that you even want him to have it so easy or that you want to have it so easy. 
because there's a part of you that probably admires your skills, your strengths, your grit. Mm. Yeah, that's totally true. I think there is quite a bit of envy in there um, as we think about building our lives together and suddenly there's this option to have it be easier because I'm with someone who has it easier. That seems appealing, but at the same time, it there's always in the back of my mind the thought that if this ends, I'm back to my like immigrant life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard again, and I'm envious that that for him it's kind of an option. He's opted into this, into thinking about this, and for me, it's not. Right. Um, right. But you're right. I also. I do feel strong and I am proud of myself and um, and I, I'm totally aware that that has come from what I've experienced in my life. So it's complicated. Yes, it's complicated, it's layered, it's not this or that. Mm. And But you're right, he chooses, but you know what? So have you. Because if I was asking you what drew you to him, Somewhere, I'm imagining, you tell me, read whenever I'm going off track, that Mm -hmm. you would also say that part of what you appreciate in him, A, is his curiosity and his deep interest in you and your life experience and your family's experience and the world and the politics outside of this country, etc. And B, that he comes from a strong family. That's true. And that what draws you to him is his nuclear family, the kind of bonds they have with each other, the, the, the stability that that represents, the continuity in his family, kind of the opposite of the disruptions and the breaches that took place in your family. Yeah. At the same time, his family did. They split up mm-hmm. later um, than mine did, but they did. I don't think I could have been with him or anyone for that matter who hadn't had some of those issues in their own life. Which issues? Of a a family divorce, of Mm -hmm. um, some kind of, some kind of pain or something. (laughs) It sounds sounds kind of harsh, but, but you know, something to, um, to compare it to something to help you have empathy. It's not harsh. It's not harsh at all. Your family, there was the loss in your family came through divorce, uh, and yeah, and separation. Separation of what sort? Uh, physical. My dad is not in this country. Right, but because by choice or by by choice, yeah, there's a divorce and we came here. Mm-hmm. And what you say is having someone else who also experienced a breakup in the family who also experienced loss and pain from within the family is a point of identification that we have with each other that is very important to me. So he may come from privilege, but there is something about loss inside the family and what that feels like that we do share. And for me, knowing that someone had experienced some tragic element in his life was very important. He wasn't just the coaster all over the place. Yeah, 
he's not that guy. And that, yeah, okay. that is important to me. Okay. So now you sit with him and you tell him, you know, I realize as we live closer together and we've lived with, in the same home, it's like I get to see what I had and what I didn't have by looking at you. You probably do the same with me. And I get to see how you've come to expect certain things by virtue of how you grew up and same for me. And I get to see the way where we see the world as something that is stable and consistent and the places where we see the world as more precarious and fragile. And this is not a problem that we need to solve. This is a reality that we learn to live with. I guess, yeah, I guess that's the answer right there. <laughs> that was Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. It's a Spotify original podcast. It's produced by Magnificent Noise for Spotify. Shan, your next pick is the podcast Almost 30. It's a health, wellness, and spirituality podcast that aims to be a supportive space for women. Why this podcast? What What's special about it to you? I love it because I love women's friendships. I love what Krista and Lindsay share as friends, and I like the banter that they have. And they're always in slightly different places in life and different goals, but the love that they have for each other and the passion that they have for wellness and for growth is amazing. I also think the whole point of podcasts is to get a look inside of worlds that you probably wouldn't be privy to on your own. And they're very much into intentional wellness and intentional healing in a way that I'm not necessarily. So I'm always listening to them and hearing about their trips and their meditation practices and being like, wow, I would never do that. And it's fascinating because I'm like, here's a look into a world that I'm not necessarily a part of, but so many people I think now too are, are finding themselves in this and they also really expand the definition of wellness um, in a really beautiful way. So it's for the friendship, it's for the learning, it's for the voyeurism. Uh, it's just a really good podcast. In this clip from Almost 30, hosts Krista and Lindsay speak with therapist and relationship expert Nedra Glover-Twab about something many people struggle with, how to set boundaries. Let's take a listen. We've talked a lot about the, the verbal boundaries that people can set. And in my experience, I've also, when I was first creating boundaries, it was with my mom and I didn't know what I was doing, much like what you said. I didn't really understand or have the verbiage for what was happening. But a lot of the boundaries I set were nonverbal. You know, it was really um, started with that. And then I basically was able to get the courage and the confidence to have those verbal boundaries. What are some of the ways in which people can work with nonverbal boundaries as well? So behavior is nonverbal. So if we are bothered by a particular, you know, maybe someone calling or, or texting us, behavioral is not responding. If someone is yelling at you and you've, particularly if you say, hey, if you start to yell, I am going to disengage. When they start to yell, disengage. That is your behavior. That's what you can control. So there are so many things that we can do behaviorally that doesn't involve the other person. Lots of times with boundaries, we want to tell the person so it's all on them. Now, like, here's my thing and you must do it. We don't want to say to people, okay, 
um, this is actually what I need. And we don't want to behave in a way that is a boundary. For example, people will say, my mother-in-law pops up unannounced. Um, what should I do when she comes over? Behaviorally, you don't have to answer the door. <laughs> you know, like it's your door. <laughs> like if you communicated, please call before you come, or you could go to the door and say, Hey, this is not a good time for me. Like there's so many things we can do. And really the boundaries that we set, it's based on our comfort level. And we're not always comfortable with the same things. And so you really have to think about what could work. What can I say? Not what Nedra says, but what can I say in my very own way that makes me feel comfortable? Because, yeah, I mean, how many times have you told someone like, he's no good for you, leave her alone, all of these sort of things, and they continue on. That's not their comfort level to leave the relationship yet. And so we have to allow people to operate in ways that feels best for them. Yeah, sometimes I have a hard time. And I feel like a lot of us are, are this way in, in, in the sense that we kind of, I can see both sides in situations. Mm-hmm. So if I'm setting a boundary, like I can, I can kind of see how that's uncomfortable for the other person. I almost like, it's not shape-shifting, but it's like I'm also feeling what they're feeling. So that empath in me. And do you have a way in which you can kind of like, for me, it's like regulating my emotions and like remembering like, okay, how do I feel? And, and, and being in my own body, is there ways in which we can do that in the moment when we are setting a boundary? Overthinking can be a habit. And I think that we, when we are in the habit of checking in with the person that we set the boundary with, we have to break that habit and start to check mm. in with ourselves, which is what you, you've mentioned that you're starting to do. You have to check in with yourself. You have to manage your discomfort after you've set the boundary. You have to manage how you'll engage in future interactions with this person because even though the boundary is placed with them, the boundary is about you. So you are the person who needs the care in this moment because you've done a very hard thing. And it's interesting because people often think like I've, you've set all of the boundaries. It's so easy for you to set boundaries. I still set boundaries that make my stomach drop after Mm. I say them. And I'm like, oh, That was was a tough one. And then I immediately feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy I let that out. Because if it felt like that coming out, gosh, it must have felt terrible sitting in there for weeks. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's so important to know that, you know, this is not something you learn about boundaries and it's like, okay, done. Got all the boundaries. It's like, no. Like I, I can imagine that when, you know, I'm a grandparent or when I'm a, you know, like whatever, I Mm -hmm. will be setting some boundaries, you know, like it is a continuous practice. And the more we practice it, the easier it becomes. And in doing the work, we have to take care of ourselves and allow other people to take care of themselves after they hear something that's difficult. We all Mm -hmm. hear difficult stuff and we have to take care of ourselves when, when we feel that and not um, necessarily tune into other people and check on them after we've done the really hard work of, of setting a boundary. Yeah. It's interesting when you were talking about someone receiving the boundary, and I actually don't think we've ever talked about 
what if you're the person that's that's on the receiving end of a newly created boundary in a relationship? Like what is the best way to respond? What is the best way to take care of yourself? And is there anything that you can really do there? That is the biggest thing. And that's a really hard thing, but we have lots of practice, right? Um, we were somebody's child for, for 18 years and we listened to a whole lot of boundaries and rules mm. and restrictions and don't do this and watch this. What did you just eat? All of that stuff. And we will do it for the rest of our lives. We will do it for the rest of our lives. We're already listening to boundaries. You all did a sound check with me. I had to listen to, is this okay? Do you want me to do this? I am following you. Those are your boundaries for your program, correct? Mm -hmm. So we're always listening to boundaries. It's, we have to normalize that. When we go outside and we get in our cars and we stop at a light, we're listening to the boundary of stop at the red light. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. we're, we're already mm -hmm. doing it. Now, you know, the light is not coming down and talking to you and saying, Nedra, you stop at the real light like you would perceive a friend telling you something directly. But we know how to obey rules. We already know how to obey boundaries. And so if someone is, is placing one with you, respect it if it's reasonable. You know, if it's reasonable, respect it because what the person is doing is really trying to feel safe. and. I would, I would venture to say they're trying to preserve the relationship because in many cases, the ultimate boundary is not being in a relationship with someone. So if that is the boundary, you have to respect that one too. But if they're saying, you know, this is my preference for blank, they are continuing in a relationship with you and they are sharing the preference. That was a clip from the podcast, Almost 30. It's hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsick. It's edited by Crate Media. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you about a new TV show that you worked on with CBC. I know you can watch it on CBC Gem. It's a six-part docu-series yes. called The Big Sex Talk. Can you tell me more about it? Oh, thank you. I'm so proud of it. And in essence, what I love about it is if you ever watched uh, Explained before on Netflix or the Vox series that come out that just do an incredible job of explaining and debunking myths around a topic that we all know but are kind of ambiguous about and that's really what sex is for a lot of people we all have an idea of it but if we were to genuinely break it down and ask specific questions on the topics that again we might have heard the language before but we don't exactly know what it means that's what this is doing so whether it be on open relationships or the lgbtq plus community or on asexuality or on kink what this show does is it takes these words that are in pop culture zeitgeist but floating around sort of just being tossed around here and there without any further dialogue and really fleshing them out and my role on this show is just to walk is to be the walmart greeter right i walk people through it i i take you through um what the topic is and then you have all these various experts and people with personal experience and people with great stories who come in and really bring life to it. I'm very excited to see it. Are there any other projects that you're working on that you want people to know about? I think I always like think you get one wish when you're on these things like people don't have the time everybody's busy and if you've listened this far I mean thank you so much for your time in that way but everyone's so busy and so overloaded with content um, I'm on Netflix it's too hot to handle right now but Rather than you watching that, I'd rather you listen to my podcast and just say that flat out. So that's that's my one wish. 
Okay, we're going to listen to the podcast way more. And thank you so much for joining me today, Shan. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. If you want more of Shan, you can find her on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Shan Booty. That is at Shan, B-O-O-D-Y. And you can listen to Lovers and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Now I'd like to turn it to you. Tell us about the podcast you love. You can tweet us at Podcast Playlist or send us an email at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca. Podcast Playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Julian Uzielli, Josh Fleer, and Elena Hudgens-Lyle. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Arif Narani, director of CBC Podcasts. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.